Hi, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the feminist podcast produced by socially distant socialists. Today we have Kellen, Walida, Zoe, and Laura. And today we are talking about pandemics and what history can teach us about them. It was only a matter of time before I forced my co-hosts to bring history to our discussion of (laughs) COVID-19. Sorry about it, guys. Um, No, sorry. (laughs) Luckily today, it's not just me. Uh, We have an amazing, very knowledgeable guest here to talk through this stuff with us. Um, And also, (laughs) Bragg, she is a colleague of mine. Um, I'm very lucky to have spent the last year working with her. So, Elise, welcome to Season of the Bitch. Yay! Um, could you, inter- yeah, of course. Could you introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Elise Mitchell, uh, currently a PhD candidate at NYU and I work on smallpox and slavery and also now a little bit of COVID-19. Um, awesome. Yeah. So as you mentioned, your re- research focuses on smallpox. You have written about epidemics in the Caribbean, um, also about slavery. Can you tell us about a little bit about how the epidemics that you work on played out. Yeah, so I work on smallpox epidemics that happened in the Circum-Caribbean region, pretty broadly defined, like the, including like the North American coast, South American coast and the islands between, um, before the invention of the vaccination, which was invented and promoted between like 1798 and 1806, roughly. So I, I work on the period before that. Um, which includes a few times when smallpox was somewhat of a novel virus in the Americas. I mean, it's a disease that was pretty prevalent in in Europe and Africa and much of the old world, um, Asia as well, before the 1500s. But some of the first outbreaks in the Americas happened um, in those like early days of, of European um, invasion and early days of slavery. Um, and so for my research, I've tracked a little over 400 outbreaks. Now wow. they don't didn't always, yeah, they didn't always spiral into epidemics. So like a lot of times one or two people came down with the disease, maybe they like arrived on a ship or something and they were quarantined and it was quickly put to bed. And I would say that that was pretty, it was pretty normal for them to happen aboard slave ships and other transatlantic voyages. And people were pretty swiftly quarantined in a lot of cases and, the, um, and a full scale epidemic was prevented. But there were also times when that didn't happen and, you know, the disease could spread um, continentally in some cases. Um, they're the, one of the first outbreaks in the Americas in 1518 through like the 1520s spread pretty thoroughly, like through much of North America, Central America and South America um, and all of the Caribbean. Um, and the same is true for an, a smallpox outbreak that happened during the um, American Revolutionary War. So it, it kind of depended on how well um, colonial governments and other like secular and non-secular officials, often the Catholic Church, like responded to the disease. Um, I, I think that answers the question. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. No, that's great. And it actually it brings up something that um, I remember you saying recently, which was really intriguing for me. And unfortunately, we didn't get to talk about it much, which was that um, people f- kind of handled epidemics better a couple hundred years ago than they're doing now. And I yeah. was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that. 
So, yeah. So, I mean, um, and so, I mean, gosh, I feel like I've said better and then I almost want to backtrack that because it's like better for who. Um, But in terms of, so in the early modern period, like broadly defined the period that I'm talking about, like before the invention of the vaccination, so many, um, so many colonial officials like put pressure on both slaveholders and other folks in their communities, other colonists, to like be really vigilant about smallpox and other contagious diseases like measles or even yellow fever in some cases, um, and insisted that they like quarantine people and always re- recognize that it was undesirable for the disease to spread, whether it was spreading amongst native people, Afri- enslaved Africans, or other colonists. Um, so during during the era of slavery that I study, one of the reasons why I wanted to study smallpox is because it was one of the few diseases where enslaved people actually got medical care because before the, or any kind of medical treatment, because before the um, mid to late, like 18th century, so mid to late 1700s, slaveholders were pretty, were not that invested in enslaved people's health because the the slave trade was functioning um, really well. And they were just like, we can we can purchase more enslaved Africans if we need to. So they were not invested in promoting their health, but they were concerned about contagion spreading, particularly to like their other residents and, and especially to children. So if an enslaved person came down, like, I mean, some of the worst slave molders, like, you know, you have people like Thomas Thistlewood, who's just like notorious for all the manner of like, like violence that he committed against enslaved people. Yeah. Even he... Like if somebody, if when people came down with smallpox on the um, plantations that he was overseeing or even in say people of his own, he immediately sent them to like be quarantined somewhere. In some cases, he had to construct a hut for them to be quarantined in and would send um, another enslaved person with them to act as a caretaker so that that person wouldn't have to leave. So in terms of like mitigation, of course, in, in cases like that and in cases of the slave trade where enslaved people were quarantined, you know, black people were paying the cost of mitigation with their lives. But at the same time, you weren't having this kind of situation of a, a global pandemic where mm-hmm. people are still being forced to work without any protective gear and other things like that, where it will continue to spread um, unless those unless those issues are addressed. Um, and like even in terms of like with quarantine policies, sort of reshaping where different quarantines would happen and trying to figure out ways that like that we would probably consider akin to social distancing today to sort of spread people out or keep people in their homes. Uh, the colonial governments seem to be, and, and when I say colonial governments, I'm talking about like British, French, Spanish, and Portuguese seem to be much more committed to like accomplishing that than, mm. than we're seeing today, where it seems like some folks still really think that they'll be exempt from this somehow. And that's not how, that's not how this works. <laughs> yeah, I think that segues really well into a question, Walita, you wanted to ask. Yeah, um, how poverty and race sort of play into how states are responding to pandemics, um, mostly because we're seeing reports that black and brown people are dying at higher rates from this pandemic so far, at least from what we're from the data we've been able to gather. And coincidentally, we're seeing very small, um, almost negligible, but media amplified protests being held by mostly white people to reopen the economy. I remember I saw I think it was on Twitter the other day, a woman, um, I think she was a mayor or something from a town in Michigan somewhere, um, who was, who was basically on TV saying, you know, this is a Detroit problem. 
like I want to reopen up my town. This is like a D- Detroit is sick. The rest of the state isn't. Uh, so I don't see why we all have to be shut down. Apparently not understanding how viruses travel. Oh but God. like, yeah, it was really, really bizarre. Um, she was genuinely very uh, angry and upset. Um, but, you know, a lot of these people are small business owners that want the economy reopened because they're losing everything. But not everybody is. And I'm, I'm just kind of wondering how, you know... Th- Poverty and the fear of poverty is driving a lot of this, um, people wanting to reopen the economy. It doesn't occur to them to demand to be paid to stay home. It, it only occurs to them to demand to be let, to, to go back to work to get paid. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how poverty and race um, shapes how pandemics might ravage through populations, whether a few centuries ago or today. Yeah, I mean, like... Uh... That's that's such a heavy question. Um, so I guess I'll start with like how I, I'll start like with the history and, and hopefully get through the different parts of it. Um, I mean, so I mean the way that like viruses work in in the same society that we all live in, right? Like so it the the way that it functions it functions along those like fault lines in a society where people are not are subjected to like cruel and inhumane and unsustainable conditions to begin with. And the virus just sort of like will exacerbate that or like exponentiate that kind of harm. So like for for the period that I study, so many of the smallpox outbreaks were caused by the fact that, you know, Europeans were packing Africans onto slave ships without any like room to be close to each other. A lot of times taking enslaved children and other young people or people from war-torn communities who might have had ways of mitigating the spread of smallpox previously or even practiced inoculation, but were practicing it when these people were at an older age. And now they're being forced before they can develop any kind of immunity onto slave ships and being shipped across an ocean um, and then quarantined where the disease can spread amongst them, but still be safe for the for colonists and the colonies. Um, and so, I mean, it's it's those social it's those kinds of conditions that you know people have total control over and are and make decisions to promote um and exploit that end up fomenting you know, like these kinds of viral outbreaks um and then in terms of race i mean like the rate of the spread it's interesting it's interesting to watch the racial data come out now because Part of the reason why we're seeing racial data for COVID-19 coming out now has to do with the fact that we weren't collecting it before. But part of it also has to do with the fact that the demographics change um, in many in many cities. So, like, I live in Philadelphia. In Philly, the um, government was saying a couple weeks ago, like, the beginning, I want to say, like, the second week of April, that the demographics of who was coming down with COVID-19 changed from being predominantly white folks in Philly to being predominantly um, African-Americans and, and other uh, black communities here. And seeing that and seeing that shift, you know, all of those people were coming down would have contracted the disease within the previous two weeks, which is after the shutdowns were in place, which is after everyone was aware that, you know, COVID was spreading. And so then like, what does that tell you about the lack of um, response from our local governments, but also from our federal governments in ter- and from different businesses in terms of closing or providing people with PPE or making sure that people knew about this disease to be able to avoid it or any of those things. Um, and I mean, like the data, the data is, is grim. Um, there's one research lab, the APM lab that has some data out for all races right now. And it's like, 
nationally, Black people are dying of COVID, like 26 per 100,000 Americans. For Latino people, it's 11 per um, um, 100,000 Americans. For Asian people, it's 10 per 100,000 Americans. And for white people, it's like 9 per 100,000 Americans, according to their data. But you know, like the, there's also like the COVID and race project out of the that the Atlantic is running with Abraham Kendi. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, who was really an early voice in like pushing for racial data around the disease. Um, but like the and like the high death rates that we're seeing, and even like the high rates of severity in the community, have to do on the one hand with like historical racial health disparities and the fact that in most cases black black and brown communities have higher rates of diseases like of chronic conditions like asthma, heart disease, diabetes, which puts you at greater risk of having a severe case of COVID. And some of that has to do with the history. Like some of that has to do with the fact that you know folks have been forced to live in areas where there's severe environmental pollution and food deserts. They haven't had access to the medical care that they need or the information that they need to be able to take care of themselves. People are just poor and can't afford to take care of themselves the way that they would want to, um, to in ways that would promote health. But also, and, and like, you know, and the poverty is something that, you know, is a part of a much broader history. But it's also the fact that, you know, people of color can't, um, often don't have health insurance and even people who did in the beginnings of this a lot of um, primary care physicians were not seeing patients so if you're somebody who's trying to cost save on medications that you should be taking like on a regular basis to control your asthma or your diabetes or, or heart conditions or whatever you're not you're probably not filling those prescriptions and maybe you tried to in the wake of covid but weren't able to because of because of the um, issues with pcs so it's part of, so I, I feel like, you know, there could have been, there were opportunities for our government at the federal level and even at the state level to step up in terms of making sure that people had access to health insurance and had not, and had the knowledge to go, you know, fill their prescriptions and, and kind of get up to date um, on some, on some basic health things that could have saved people's lives or prevented them from having more severe cases of this disease right now. Um, okay. And then these protests, I mean, I'm angry that the protesters are, are out here, you know, not demanding that they get more resources and pay um, as a solution. But I'm but I'm a little bit more frustrated with um, the government for not redirecting the conversation in that direction because these protesters are are being um, funded like mm. like and 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 sort of like put upon by some some billionaires who are pretty involved with the Tea Party and the and the GOP and stuff. Yeah. And you know, like it's a lot of familiar faces that are that are funding their bail and sort of exciting this. Um and you know, they're they're having they're getting very clear messaging from those folks. And then, you know, I've seen the clip from Cuomo and a few other a few other governors that are saying, Well, you know, if you want to go back to work so bad, why don't you go out and do essential labor? And it's like, I don't think that that's the right response. Like just right. because these people didn't vote for you, you're required to, you know, govern everybody and and the response should be, Okay, I'm gonna like go back to the Fed, I'm going to go like reach into some pockets and try to like run you some money so that you can go home and be okay during this. Um, because, you know, this this kind of like make it, because I feel like that just furthers making this a political issue rather than a public health issue. Um, so I don't know, like I'm troubled, I'm troubled by that response and I'm troubled by like the media response that's kind of like fanning the flames of these things. Um, as like, you know, people, as people are dying and it's affected policy in a way that is a little scary to me. Like, I don't know, I, my governor here, Governor Wolf has decided to develop this like measure, like 
sort of like red light, green light situation for open, reopening parts of Pennsylvania. And he plans to reopen parts of Western Pennsylvania and like the middle section um, in, in early May and was saying that Southeastern Pennsylvania where Philadelphia is might not reopen for quite some time because of the population density and all of these things. But I'm just like, also if you look at the demographics like Southeastern Pennsylvania and then also like, you know, cities like Pittsburgh, which probably won't reopen for some time, have um, a large contingency of like people of color living here and a lot of um, business owners of color here who will suffer those consequences for longer. And I haven't looked into the economics of this, but I hope that there's some form of like wealth redistribution that accompanies that because otherwise, you know, you're sort of heeding these calls from people who are probably at a lower risk for contracting the disease and it might be safe to reopen who are protesting and who are like in many cases, majority white and then not, you know, and then sort of like folks who are trying to do the social distancing thing who are already at higher risk for all of these like historic disparities, but then are also at higher risk right now because it's in our neighborhoods and they're, and, you know, they're, they're ramping up testing, but it's not quite at the level that it needs to be, um, are going to, are going to face um, starker economic consequences from this as well. Um, so I, I hope that answers the different parts of the question. No, yeah, absolutely. It really is. Um, and you're right, they, they are funded by uh, DeVos and Koch uh, brother foundations and things like that. Um, and like, I want to say Meckler is the other guy's name who was like, yeah, that, I think. Yeah. yeah, there was like there was an intercept article about it. I think like this isn't even a conspiracy theory. This is just something that no. they figured out, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and it's it's. The, the one thing that I think is the bright side is most people don't feel that. Most people kind of understand the, the, that it's necessary to stay home. But you're right. There doesn't seem to be any plan on how to redistribute any wealth or make sure that people aren't losing their homes, their businesses, um, everything, while the economy is essentially shut down. Yeah. I mean, like people, because I mean, like people also need to eat. Like, I mean, in Philly, yeah. they've been doing, they've had to ramp up, like, free food distribution and I mean some of the reports I was reading out of New York were that in communities in Queens some people were starving and sick with COVID like like it's just it's obscene and and at the same time you know because our supply chains are breaking down left and right like farmers are destroying crops that could be feeding people like it's it's, yeah, it's it's not a system meant to uh, sustain during a time of inactivity. It, it, we have to be active in it uh, every single day, otherwise it completely falls apart. I mean, some businesses shuttered after three days of no activity. Um, yeah, it's really bad. Um, I, I did want to ask, the next question I wanted to ask was about uh, chronic illnesses um, and other injuries and how they might be affected, but I think you already answered that. Um, in your other answer, which was really, really great. So I don't know, Laura, if you want to go into um, your question. So, I mean, okay, sorry, this is going to maybe be like a little bit long-winded of a question, but just to try to like explain it. I think generally what we are curious about is like, we know that there are ways to keep people safe. You know, we've seen it happen mostly in places outside of the United States, but also in like specific locations within. Um, And this is mostly when we see universal safety nets. Um, So in addition to universal health care, how do things like um, these universal safety nets, such as housing, um, prevent pandemics from getting worse? Well, I mean, like housing, you know, you, people can go inside. <laughs> I, mean, like, 
just, and I and I don't say that to to be flipped towards you. I say that to just kind of be totally. flipped towards like our society. Like I, who I thinks like, it's so insane to think of it? I know. I'm glad you say it like that because it is. It's wild. It's like, of it's, course, it's, this is what you do. Yeah, and so you know, as, as somebody who like studied, who was like started studying like the impact of smallpox on society, studying its impact on enslaved people, like I was looking around the world before this happened because I started this project years ago. Like, how have we not had a global pandemic? And I was like, okay, we have HIV/AIDS going on. I guess like maybe that's what we're dealing with. But I was like, how have we not had something like this already? Given the way that we've like built this very fragile like social structure. Mm-hmm. So I mean, like. Housing. People need housing so that they can stay home. If they're sick, people need paid sick leave and they need paid family leave so that if they are like the sickest one, they're not having to go out and spread the disease or having to like push themselves to a point of exertion where they would die of it. So it's important that like I've seen so much conversation around like organizing for sick leave, but family leave is just as important. Yes. With that. um, And then, I mean, of course, universal health care, but also also telemedicine, also like. So one of the things that that frustrated me about the response here is that, you know, in Philadelphia, a lot of people are have to go to hospitals for their medical providers, even if they're seeing like different PCs and parts of different practices, they're kind of concentrated. But you have all of these different like holistic healers. You also have like a huge network of like LGBTQ focused and um, like like African-American focused, Latino focused um, testing centers for things like HIV AIDS and other kinds of like reproductive health related and, and, and sexual health related it, fo- like workplaces. And, and for, it would have been nice to have seen the city mobilized with those people, mobilized with like a lot of the community acupunctures that are set up here too, because they all know all of those sanitary precautions already. I'm like, those are people that could have been testing folks. Those are also people who could have been notifying people in the community because they already have a certain sense of like community trust, which is a huge issue when you're talking about anything with race and medicine and anything with any person of color interacting with the medical profession, regardless of the race of their provider. Um, And then, I mean, in terms of other societies and social safety nets, the fact that there are some that, you know, I mean, have universal health care, have much lower poverty and homelessness rates, also, like, have less people working in really unstable, like, gig economies, too, where where it's just, like, you know, people are, are put at risk in a different kind of way, I think, like, can, you know, help stem the strain, but also just, like, having a, a wider education campaign, because I feel like people didn't really understand what was going on with this. Like, I'm even kicking myself, because um, another colleague of Kellen and mine in January was just like, what do you think about coronavirus? And I was like, Shh, it's not going to happen. And then, like, a, mm-hmm. <laughs> later, I was like, oh, like, but I think it was like February 21st was the first case in California with a guy who like either wouldn't tell or didn't know how they, how they contracted it. And I was like, Oh my God, no, this is over. Like California has a huge, you know, population of people who are homeless. There's a ton of people who are in prison over there. And you know, the U S is the leader in incarceration, which is, and the ways that we incarcerate people promotes the spread of something like this. And, um, and I'm like, and we also have like a large undocumented population in California who's not going to feel comfortable coming forward, who are also might be working as farm workers who are affected as well. Um, and so the fact that we don't have, and also the fact that like we don't have like the strongest labor laws in this country around like providing, like that would and force businesses to provide people with PPE if necessary, mm-hmm. or like would potentially provide some type of funding to provide workers with PPE um, right now, because it's like, as our essential workers are dying during this. And that is unfortunately like in the past when that 
happened for the epidemics that I study like that, that just leads to like famine. Like, I mean, you know, because right. the, either because of a supply chain breakdown or because there just aren't people to go like harvest the crops. Um, and, you know, I don't think that we're looking at, at famine here in the U.S. And lots of experts have said that, but they have, but we've already seen shortages and they have said, you know, there's going to be probably more shortages through the summer in specific like areas around like meat and also like certain, certain fruits. And, and, um, I think like, I, I've heard like lettuce is under threat, but I don't, I don't really know. Don't quote me on that one, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I just, I want to just say for the record, Elise, you may, maybe, in January, you didn't respond the way you would have liked, but I have a very specific memory of being at a happy hour very, very early on and you being like, this thing's gonna blow up and you were right. So you did call it pretty darn early, I will say that. (laughs) Yeah, but so, well, I'm from Philly, I don't live there now, but um, I was like thinking about what you were saying in terms of the, closing like certain parts of the state, which doesn't really make sense to me at all how that could work because so much of the like labor and farms in central PA are to like bring food to Philly and Pittsburgh. And like, they like go into the cities and have like Reading Terminal Market and like other like big markets, um, which I like also happens like statewide and like countrywide. Like if one place is closed and another isn't, even in your apartment, like if I'm quarantining and my roommate isn't, then that doesn't really do anything. Um, so just like in thinking of how this spreads and looking at kind of the ways that history repeats itself, I think obviously there's a lot of similarities um, to past pandemics, but there's also like we have different technology now, like life is really different in the way that people just travel like for fun and can just like get on a plane and go somewhere, um, which hasn't really been the case in (laughs) like a lot of the you know historical pandemics that we're talking about so what do you think are like the similarities that we're seeing which you were kind of talking about and like what lessons could we learn from past outbreaks I mean I think the first lesson that we can learn is um in every outbreak going back to the ones that I study all the way through like yellow fever malaria like issues like I mean in a cholera um the Spanish flu or excuse me I'm speaking like the 1918 flu the HIV AIDS all of them I mean like they they show you that oftentimes people who are in the lowest classes of society pay the cost of any mitigation efforts um but also at the same time those people are the ones who are the most important to bringing a pandemic epidemic to a close um so any attempt to try to get around addressing the people who are the poorest in our society the people who are being forced to work during this people who are homeless people who work in illicit economies um are criminalized economies are are the people that we have to prioritize in order to get this to stop um and any kind of like attempt to like do a trickle down thing is not going to work for this um or for anything (laughs) <laughs> or for anything, yeah. yeah, for anything, yeah. And I mean, I think, I think that as much as like I am heartened that people are like now interested in my research and things, I actually think that the folks that are more worth paying attention to are people who are doing work on the history of the ongoing HIV/AIDS pandemic. 
mm-hmm. um, because it exists within, because it's happening within um, a society that works very similarly to ours. Like, I mean, because in terms of like mitigation strategies and like the kind of surveillance that happened around public health for the period that I study, you know, it was really extreme. Like sometimes if like, you know, the quarantine law, like the public health laws that I read, it's like, you know, we're going to burn this person alive. If you like try to like leave the Island and tra- or travel somewhere, if you like try to leave the house or like they're throwing people overboard, like it's like, it's really, it's like there's really crazy brutal things, but you know, there's a legacy to that that's still with us. And we see that in terms of like, the sort of like in the early days of HIV AIDS criminalization um, of like people in, engaged in different kinds of sex acts, the, stig- the stigmatization of that, the kind of surveillance that like the CDC and other public health organizations do to like do contact tracing and other things, we're sort of seeing that emerge. Um, and a lot of the scholars that I know, like I'm thinking of folks like Stephen Thrasher, who's a, who's a journalist and a um, historian and sociologist of HIV AIDS and, and a few other folks, um, JT Rohn as well, have talked about like both the importance of community, like of community-based like informi- information campaigns, but also like being wary of like the levels of surveillance that sort of can come with this. So like, you know, today, like we, you mentioned technology and like we have all of this technology you know, we're seeing reports out of different parts of Asia. I, I know China and I believe um, either Singapore or Korea um, are also doing like contact tracing things with like people's phones and letting yeah. them know if they're if they're like okay or not to go back to work, et cetera. And like that, um, and like those are societies that have a very different history and different relationship to privacy. Um, I don't, I don't really want to like try to comment on that too much because I'm not a specialist in that area and, and I don't want to misspeak, but here, you know, like we, the, the way that that functions here with that level of surveillance tends to become an infringement of privacy rights. And then also tends to like criminalize as a certain communities, um, and turns really, turns really violent and dangerous to a lot of communities really quickly. So I don't know like so like as much as we want this to end as much as we want everybody to stay safe i'm concerned that there's like also a level of that that can get carried away given the given the current administration that we have and any potential future administration that we might have and just given the history of like like race and policing um in this country and like the histories around like criminalizing communities of color and queer communities in this country um so yeah, like, I mean, we, yeah, we, like, are able to move rapidly and trying to get people to slow down is going to be difficult, but also, like, how do you do that without infringing on people's, like, rights or needs to move? Um, and, like, you know, yeah, it's it's tough. Systemic uh, racism and white supremacy has poisoned every aspect of American society and culture. I mean, we can't even do, like, how wonderful would it be if we had a functioning representative government where we trusted to do something like contact tracing through our phones so that they could, because we would feel like they were doing it for our benefit rather for then, rather than to consolidate more uh, police state power and punish uh, populations that they've, they've always punished. Um, Because of course you're right. Of course, that's what they're going to do. We expect that from them. And it's already happening. I mean, you know, because we've we've heard a couple of reports of people getting like picked up by police for being outside without yeah. masks or for being too close to each other or just having police interactions, yeah, which yeah. you know is is a huge is a huge problem too. Um, and like, I mean, you know, in, in Philly, like they flooded the streets with cops after after the social distancing went into effect. 
um, in in a response to like what was supposed to be like a decrease in arrests and policing. I don't know how much that actually worked out. Like I I've heard reports that they they're doing it, but that's coming from the city. Like I haven't seen actual data. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as they're like saying that they're releasing people from prison, you know, we also are having people that are dying in our jails and prisons right now yeah. um, because of this. So it's or or like you know if you get picked up, then now you've caught it. And I, I don't know, like it's just it it's really it's really tough. And it's just I in terms of solutions for this one, like I'm kind of it's been it's been really painful and difficult to watch because the solutions that, you know, I know from studying the history, from paying attention to like more current public health things are ones that you do like before we get to this point, yeah. you know, and now we're, yeah. and now we're kind of in this free fall situation that like, I know like, isn't like going to be the same level of death as it would be if we carried on, like nothing was happening. Like I was a little, like I was kind of like, we're going to have to close every, like in February, I was like, we're going to have to close everything at this point because we we're already seeing what's probably community spread places or yeah. like that, you know. Um, yeah, that's um, part of what I wanted to like ask next also was, you know, as we're t- discussing and as we know, the U.S. is a true neoliberal capitalist hell. Um, in some ways, we 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 trend to be like a, a center of globalized neoliberalism. And I wanted to talk about the specific reasons that the United States failed to deal with this crisis. Um so kind of we've already started talking about it. Like, why did we fail and how did we fail? Like, we've talked about, um, of course, the jail systems and also the, like, slow response. But I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on, like, maybe why it was so slow here and and then maybe some of the other things that are specific to the United States or maybe things that are just more global and are being carried out here. Well, it was slow because we, like, basically like gutted the cdc right like, started, like pandemic response team so like that's number one yeah um and that happened under the last administration mm-hmm. um you know like we've seen all those reports about how they had a plan for something like this but it relied on testing um our our federal government has refused to it, it refused to accept tests from who early on i mean from who early on which was like a problem but um in addition to that i think the I think that it is like, I think that capitalism is, has kind of operated as a, a like silent partner and like aiding this thing to spread mm-hmm. just because the, so like the early reports out of China, you were seeing like these people in other parts of the world coming down with COVID in, um, at like business conferences and other things. And I'm still curious about like, who, what, what, what companies were sending people in and out of different parts of China, in and out of different parts of the world, who might have been carriers with the disease? And I feel like the answer to like why that that wasn't those vectors were not at the forefront of anyone's minds um, has everything to do with like xenophobia, racism, and capitalism. Like it wouldn't it wouldn't have been profitable to have like tried to like target or halt certain kinds of business travel. But then it also was really easy for the U.S. government to say this is a problem that China has, like, mm-hmm. and this is a Chinese thing, and sort of, and like, you know, the way that our public health institutions and even institutions that like are are not necessarily state public health institutions sort of tried to map the disease onto different states and, and continues to onto different states in the U.S. But like before that, mapping it onto China or mapping 
taking it on to like Spain and other places promoted this idea of like fixed of like borders as like being like somehow fixed or impermeable instead of like figuring out like how to trade vectors and represent vectors to the public um because like it it was surprising to me that seeing public health officials um in philly and in other places like when they were surprised that cases were coming in from like new york or from other states and i'm just like but we know that people move between philadelphia and new york between new york and connecticut like we know that people who live in new rochelle are going to be all over the city like like to dinner. like we know all of this already so like but we're not paying attention to vectors we're thinking that like this is just going to stay in one place when we know that's not what people do so i feel like that was really like where one of the biggest failures came in um was just the fact that we were not paying any attention to vectors. And then that and that goes down to like how we like weren't protecting um communities of color early on in this is who especially communities that were like really like that where a lot of people are performing essential labor because that's that's vectors. Like, you know, and and so like this emphasis on like neighborhoods and zip codes and everything like is right now is important but i'm just kind of like but how do people move like it doesn't it doesn't really matter if we're paying attention to covid in this one zip code if all of those people like commute for work or if all of those people are like essential laborers who commute for work or all like have family ties in like this other place for whatever reason like so i i feel like that framing of it was really troubling early on um and then i like i mean like i already said like lack of testing um, and then like, just a lack of a total lack of a social safety net and total lack of like any kind of preparation for that. I mean, like the, the, what prompted me to write the piece of the Atlantic was that I was like in my office, like writing and then went out to like, go get a snack and figured I'd pick up some hand sanitizer and there was nothing. And like, <laughs> and then like, I yeah. like tweeted about it and I was like, oh my God, like how are we out of this? But also it's like hand sanitizer, face masks, gowns, like none of those things go bad. Like why don't, why didn't we start like ramping up stores for that in December? Like worst case scenario, we have too many and like we have to give them away or something. Like, I don't know, like it's just, it's, it's like not. Um, so yeah, I feel like the whole mindset and the whole mindset of like trying to figure out ways to like profit around this by like either finding a miracle drug or like the refusal, like for, for both parties really right now in terms of on the national stage to like consider universal healthcare like as an immediate option is um like really says a lot about like how we've sort of like allowed for capitalism to just like basically like work in tandem with this virus it, yeah. not for any of our benefit like yeah. well said absolutely yeah very well said um you're right it's not it wouldn't have been profitable uh to <laughs> to have to put in warehouses everywhere a bunch of PPE and hand sanitizer just in case we need it. Like who was gonna do, the only the only like entity that could do something like that would be the federal government. And our federal government is, is I mean, it's, we're in essence a failed state. It doesn't state. exist. I mean, it just doesn't exist, they don't do anything. It doesn't um, exist. Except make themselves richer and their yeah. friends well, richer. Yeah, yeah, handmaidens of, of capital. Um, so at, season of the bitch we uh like to try to end on a positive note or something kind of <laughs> resembling a positive note um and so i think that that the last thing we kind of wanted to to talk to you about as we're nearing the end of uh this episode is sort of steps that we whether that's um 
individuals, whether, you know, communities, whether that's like on a national level, steps that we can or should be taking um, from this point? What what can we do now? Um, labor organizing yeah. is, is beautiful. And I mean, seeing that happen is, is incredible. And we're in a really opportune moment for that, where a lot of people, like, I mean, a lot of people are rightly angry and a lot of people are feeling the pressure of this. And I think the labor organizing, especially when it's like beyond your immediate circle, like at NYU, our, our unions spans like other workers and we, like besides grad student workers, and we've been um, really like bringing their, bringing other workers um, problems to, like the, to the fore as well and, and organizing together in ways that have been impactful and the ways that have moved some of our departments to endorse it and, and I'm certainly moving the students to like endorse it further and, and making them aware of what some of our essential workers at, at NYU are facing. I think seeing more of that can can be helpful. I think the labor organizing that like was coming out of Amazon, even though like some folks have faced have faced retribution for that is still, it's still like bringing an awareness to, and I've noticed a lot more people are like interested in boycotting it as a company now too, which is, which is good. And so I think finding ways to support labor organizing and continuing with that. Um, I'm hopeful about, I'm hopeful about mutual aid um, because I feel like it, in, in some communities it's getting like money and necessities into the hands of people who would not be able to access some of the resources that like the state is, saying it's providing plans to provide may eventually provide like i don't i don't know how many people have gotten their 1200 check but um, <laughs> um i've seen some really cool like um housing and like rent like strikes happening and in, in in on a smaller scale and like in cities like new york and, and on a small scale in philadelphia too and i think that that's good to see especially in cities where like the where there aren't very many like tenant protection laws or like protections against rent increases i think that that like is like sort of a building block for a better future and the fact that even the fact that more people are just aware of this kind of organizing is is good um like you know and in, in philly there, there have been some quite a few successes around like organizing to have um ice detainees released organizing to have people held in juvenile detention centers released organizing like against the prisons and jails and organizing with people who are in those situations which i think is um which i think is good um so i'm hopeful i'm hopeful that like maybe this like wave of of labor and and um like anti like prison abolitionists and um and like housing organizing can like help move us forward it's also like also like this has sort of exposed the very like real vulnerabilities within our healthcare system that put our healthcare workers at risk um in terms of like they're like in some cases like hospitals not even allowing them to wear ppe outside of certain situations and other suburbs or like housing insecurities that some of them were facing um lack of pay or like the and like the ways that like their pen that like in some cases retired medical practitioners like pen pensions like weren't compatible with them volunteering during this or, or coming back to work during this so i think like the fact that this has exposed all of those things and that there's been really amazing labor organizing by these medical providers who are overtired and overworked right now like saving people's lives um is something that like i hope like will carry forward i mean from a historical perspective 
perspective, like the period that for the period that I study, like when these kinds of epidemics ended, there was usually a redoubling of support from colonial governments to provide better, like more, like be more vigilant about public health. In some ways that took the shape of more surveillance, but in some ways it also like led to like, we're going to establish more hospitals. We're going to build a larger hospital. Like we're going to like have a wing that's accessible to like, like to like these people that like couldn't access it before and other things like that. So my hope is that maybe um, maybe something will come of that. And and I also hope that like this sort of concerns around healthcare access translate um, to vaccination access. Um, and it, it, if a vaccine is made available in the future, and also that like the concerns around the racial health disparities also come to bear on concerns around like vaccine, any potential vaccine experimentation that may happen in yeah. the future as well. Um, yeah. No, that's, I think that's a, a great note to end it on. Um, yeah. Elise, thank you so much for joining us. This Yay. has been such a pleasure. Thank you, thank you so for much. having me. No, thank you so much for having me. Mm. Um, that was awesome. She's That's incredible. Really, yeah. Melita, thank you so much for suggesting this. This was such a good idea. Yeah, no problem. I, I mean, it was genuinely because I was curious. Like, of course. Was- <laughs> that's, a, that's the best. I feel like that's honestly when this podcast is the best, is like yeah, when one of us is like, I really want to know this. So, like, let's learn. Yeah. Especially yeah. what she talked about at the end, because I um, realized I had a realization the other day where, you know, I've been ex- an extremely political person for most of my life. I grew up in a very political household. And this pandemic is the first time in my 41 years of being alive that I that I literally said to myself, if this doesn't move Americans to demand better for themselves, nothing will. And I'm literally not talking about politics ever again. Like for, it's going to be a lost cause for me. So I'm very mm. afraid for the after times actually, because yeah. I want it to go the way I want it to go. Right. You know? <sighs> so we'll that see. makes sense. Yeah. This doesn't yeah. do it. I mean, I know, I know like in the words of Jane McAlevey, she's not wrong. There's no shortcuts. Right. right but right. sometimes events like this happen and it changes the world. And yeah. you kind of have to hope that this might be some kind of shortcut, like a little bit, yeah. <laughs> where it does something to move people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I've seen like multiple tweets of people being like, we're not ready for revolution. I'm like, what, like, when will we be? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, then what are we doing? What, like, yeah. what are we waiting for? Yeah, I mean, you know, we can do what we can now by by trying to move people as it's happening. But like at the end of the day, there's hundreds of millions of us, and you know, some of this, some radicalizing has to be self-radicalizing. Some of it has to be. So. Definitely. But it was lovely. It was a great conversation. She actually didn't make it <laughs> better at the end because if what she said is true. Then we are looking at some improvements and. You know, that's great. That's really great. Yeah. yeah, I think also like now there's there's so many like hyper local mutual aid networks, which hopefully will like continue to some degree even after this. Yeah. So I think it's like setting up a lot of good, um, you know, networks and stuff like that. 
Yeah, yeah, a good little moment to um, pitch the season of the bitch Instagram for people who are <laughs> on Instagram. We do. Yes. Um, we we've been highlighting um, mutual aid efforts as we come across them um, in our on our Instagram. So yeah. that's another place just to be um, looking if you're interested. In yeah, and you can DM us any ones that you're involved with or know about, and we will add them. Yeah. yeah. You know, as we were just talking about, this was obviously like super informative, super good for us all to to know about. And like, you know, we will continue to highlight those ways that um, we all can practice mutual aid with one another. Um, as we were saying, you can find us on our Instagram at Season of the Bee. We're also there on Twitter. Um, you can send us your money on Patreon, um, patreon.com slash season of the bitch. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, um, or send us your thoughts at season of the bee at gmail.com. I love you guys. I love, I love you. you too. Bye. Bye. A good day. <laughs> <laughs>